Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to go to focuscompounding.com to get access to everything that we put out in the investing universe. If you're watching us on YouTube right now, you could see that this is our beautiful, simple website, uh, Focus Compounding, and you could get access to blog posts from Jeff going all the way back to 2005. You could get our podcast backlog. If you want to learn more about our money management services, we do run a hedge fund. And for the individuals that don't qualify for the hedge fund, we have a separate managed accounts arm. Uh, you can get all that information on the Invest With Us tab at focuscompound.com and basically learn about everything that we're doing here. These are beautiful pictures that we took at Omaha last year. And uh, when we go this year, we're going to have to take them again. You know, like the best websites, Jeff, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but the most deliberate best websites when you're presenting yourself to the world or there's some sort of like client aspect to it, uh, are the ones that update their pictures like once a year. You ever come across a website and notice that where they continuously update their their their, their photos? Um, I'm not sure I have seen a lot of those. I've certainly seen a lot of out-of-date photos. Out-of-date photos, exactly. So yeah. when you do notice a company that updates it, to me, it's very deliberate. I like that. So we're going to have to get... Uh, some new snapshots every single year. You're right. Sometimes it's funny. Like you'll see people on Twitter or on blogs, especially in like the value investing world, and they'll have pictures of themselves from like 20 years ago. <laughs> and and then they'll go on somebody's podcast and be like, oh, wow, that was an old photo. Uh, so we're going to, we're going to uh, update ours yearly. So anyways, go to focuscompounding.com and you can get access to everything that we're doing. Focus Compounding. And hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us here today. So, Jeff, have you been following um, Nelson Peltz's uh, push, his activist push against Disney this year? I'm aware of it, yeah. I am also aware of it, and I've read some articles on it, but I haven't actually spent the time to see what he wants to change at the company and interestingly, we went over Six Flags in the previous podcast, mm -hmm. uh, an activist that was trying to make changes at the company. So we could spend some time uh, going over Disney and seeing what another activist, Nelson Peltz at Tryon, uh, is trying to do with Disney, uh, the website RestoreTheMagic.com. Pretty uh, catchy title where he outlines, you know, what he wants to do with the company and then there's also a presentation which we can go through and uh, get your thoughts on it i have not viewed any of this material this is the first time i've been to the website i read some articles about it in the wall street journal but i wanted to save it for the podcast to really uh you know spend some time thinking about it and kind of have everything be in real time um uh, but uh let's see the case for change at Disney. So they're talking about their disappointing financial performance. 
uh, post 21st century Fox deal. Do you want to talk about that deal really quick? So, um, you know, the Murdoch um, News Corp and all that broke up. And then Fox, which is a large studio, also owns cable things and stuff like that, um, was bought by Disney. And that also gives them rights to um, some Marvel things that they didn't have before, too, as well. So that would give them the rights to... um, it basically gives them the rights to like X-Men and things like that. It's I think officially any mutant thing from um, Marvel, they now have rights to and uh, fantastic four. Um, so, and then also on top of that, there would be other things including that. Like that's the reason why when we talk about avatar, that's a Disney thing is because that's from the Fox side. That wasn't a Disney release, the original movie. Got it. So let's see. Despite being one of the most advantaged global consumer entertainment companies, Disney's total shareholder return has materially underperformed the S&P 500. Uh, So on a 10-year basis, yeah, less than negative uh, 116%, five-year negative 66%, three-year 60%, uh, one-year negative 24%. Let's see. Disney's financial performance has been disappointing. Post 21st century Fox deal, like we just said, uh, free cash flow uh, has gone down. That's what it looks like. It's sliding. I mean, adjusted EPS has gone down uh, from $7.08, uh, 50% down to $3.53. And dividend per share has gone down from a buck 68 to nothing in 2022. Did they stop paying a dividend for strategic reasons through COVID and, and they just haven't reinstated it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of these things, you have to keep in mind that the, um, they're basically comparing things that are only what about a year or so before COVID happens. So that's obviously part of it. Mm-hmm. And the other, the other part is Disney Plus. You know, those are the two main factors in this because, like, you can see in the free cash flow and stuff, other parts of Disney produce more than one point one billion in free cash flow. It's just that they have businesses that are using free cash flow right now that are burning cash. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Tryon believes that Disney is a company in crisis and faces many challenges that weigh on the company's investment prospects. We believe that these challenges are primarily self-inflicted and need to be addressed. Let's see. Poor governance, corporate governance, uh, failed succession planning, over-the-top compensation, and minimal shareholder engagement. Has, has poor governance always been an issue for Disney? Like as you think about reading Disney Wars and, and everything that has happened uh, with the past, you know, three or four CEOs at the company? Sure. I mean, they don't have a strong board or something like that. Um, so I guess that's an issue both with Eisner and Iger. Um, but they did have CEOs who lasted a long time. Um, so I don't know that that's resulted in poor management and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, poor strategy and operations, flawed direct-to-consumer strategy, lack of cost discipline, using parks to subsidize streaming losses. Well, that's what you've talked a lot about on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, th- so that part's true. Whether you agree with, uh, the, you know, the second part about strategy and operations is certainly the things they're saying are true, that they are using the parks to subsidize um, losses in the direct-to-consumer. And um, it's that it is very possible there's a lack of cost discipline in terms of the things that aren't going through theaters and stuff like that. Um, so because I think there's some 
confusion about how they are deciding on the cost and the revenue associated with some of the things that they're doing. So that's a bit of an issue. Like, what do you mean? Uh, I They had reorganized the company a little bit internally. I think that when they move something that they make as a movie, and then, like I say, they made Pixar movies or there were some Disney animation movies too during COVID, and then they moved them over to direct-to-consumer in terms of where they're reporting those um, costs and revenues that they have for things and how they're budgeting that out for the movie. It's fairly easy to get an idea of if they're spending too much money on um, things that are released primarily in theaters and then are sold to others. The rights are sold around the world to others. But when you're doing it internally for yourself, it may be very difficult to know that. Um, you know, So it ends up being more like a Netflix business or something or um, where you're producing some content for your own use and it's questionable about whether you have good data on the cost things and stuff like that. There's also some possibility that they have... There's a little bit of a possibility that they the reporting may be a little skewed in some cases in terms of like where they're moving some stuff. So I think that I'm not a hundred percent sure that like the cost information for each of the business units is entirely accurate. Um, but that's just because of differences between probably what the company sees internally and then some of the financial reporting that they give um, because it's very integrated. So we don't have a lot of information about um, uh, about what they're doing in terms of how much cost they're allocating to certain businesses. So I think that's a possibility there. And it basically has to do with movies and TV series that they're creating themselves and then using internally. That's what I'm talking about. Got it. And then poor capital allocation, deteriorating returns on incremental investments, questionable M&A judgment, uh, Fox and Sky and increased leverage, eliminating 50-year dividend. Uh, try in strategic and operating initiatives. Fix corporate governance. Develop effective succession plan. Align compensation with performance. Fix strategy and operations. Improve DTC operating margins. Eliminate redundant slash excessive costs. Refocus creative engine to drive growth. And fix capital allocation. Enhance accountability reinstate dividend by fiscal year 2025. So let's see, what's their objective? Their objective is to create sustainable long-term value at Disney by working with, with is in all caps, Bob Iger and the board. Tryon recognizes that Disney is undergoing a lot of change quickly and is not trying to create additional instability. Tryon is not looking to replace Bob Iger, uh, let's see. They are for ensuring successful CEO succession within two years. They're not advocating for a breakup of Disney. They are for reinvigorating the Disney flywheel. Is that like the flywheel of, uh, you know, the product and their, their, um, you know, their content and then how that relates to their theme parks. You think that's what they're talking about or maybe the flywheel of their content and then on Disney plus, or what is it? Possibly there's big synergies to some parts of the business. So you know that makes sense obviously parks is um successful because of the the um intellectual property that they own and the brand is driven a lot by the parks um which has a halo effect on things like disney plus and uh there's a lot of that but then there's probably half the business or more that's totally unrelated i'd say mm -hmm. this is a a flywheel that uh i don't know if he exactly called it that that walt disney um published in 1957 and uh so you know they uh 
creative talent of studio theatrical films and everything that basically comes from that publications, magazine, comic strips. I mean, obviously it may be different now, a Disneyland merchandise licensing, TV commercials, blah, blah, blah. Probably one of the largest flywheels out there, huh? Yeah. So like, um, uh, they had two DuckTales series in the eighties and in the two thousands, those are based on the duck comics, which are huge comics. Um, more so in other countries than in the U S but, um, big for them. So something they do in comics, they end up doing TV shows out of, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, so things that are, they have lots of things that they use that, and they even have lots of things that they don't, um, monetize all that much. That's from, um, the, you know, the synergies that we're talking about there. So it's basically using their intellectual property in different places, especially, especially on the merchandising, the consumer stuff. I mean, it's a lot more valuable to have Disney have the property than someone else because they can merchandise it and they can uh, monetize it in lots of ways other than through the actual property itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're not advocating to increase financial leverage. They are for orderly deleveraging not seeking to cut costs that impact product quality or, or customer experience, therefore driving efficiencies and additional profits. Uh, you think the company's not for driving efficiencies and additional profits, Jeff? Um, I don't know. Uh, their financial performance isn't that great uh, uh-huh. for a long time, as you've seen here. And they, the M&A that they've done is strategically might be good, but the prices they paid are not low. The growth that they had with Disney Plus is stronger than people probably expected originally, you know, when Netflix was the only one that was doing this, but the costs have been really high. So, yeah, there's probably a lack of financial discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, not advocating for aggressive price increases at the expense of customers. They are for ensuring customers can get real value across all business lines and not advocating for a permanent dividend cut. They are for reinstating the dividend by fiscal year 2025. Um, and then they also released a, um, a presentation as well, which we can go into. And like I said, I have not, other than just before this, I kind of quickly scrolled through it. I have not spent much time, uh, going through it and it's called restore the magic and it was published January 11th, 2023. Um, very nice presentation. This reminds me of like one that like Pershing square would do. Very uh, detailed, colorful, and, you know, really yeah. well organized. Yeah. <laughs> Trian's presentations are always like that. They only invest in a small number of things. They're a very big fund, and they're all basically activists. Sometimes they cooperate with um, management where they're led on the board, and sometimes they don't, but they always involve themselves. And always, like, with great brands as well, too, correct? Yes. Um, I mean, the history of Nelson Peltz and stuff is uh, that he was, like, a... Uh, junk bond backed uh, corporate raider type early on. And um, so uh, today people might think of like Carl Icahn or someone like that. I guess there's some similarity there. Um, But everything he did in the early days was all backed by that. And then over time it's been um, in things that are these brands, right? But I think that mostly came over from food because most of his involvement was with food stuff. Mm -hmm. He did some things with um, some fast food stuff, but before that, you know, branded food things. So uh, I think moving from that into other brands has been what they've done. Yeah, it looks like Mondelez, uh, P&G, the Wendy's Company, PepsiCo, Heinz, Cadbury, Kraft Foods. I mean, Dr. Pepper, Snapple, a lot of uh, what you would consider to be pretty high quality brands. 
Yeah, I do think they were. They've been in some things that aren't that exactly. Like I think they were in Ferguson. Um, they, I'm sure that they have. The, you know, that they file a 13F, so people could see that. So they do occasionally do other things, but um, it's all activist stuff, and a lot of it is mostly uh, brands. And the companies are actually usually pretty big compared mm-hmm. to the size of the fund, too. Yeah. Okay, so why is Tryon here today? Disney is the most advantaged consumer entertainment company in the world. It has unrivaled global scale, irreplaceable brands and can leverage the Disney flywheel to monetize its intellectual property. For these reasons, we believe the company is well positioned to succeed. However, Disney's recent share price and operating performance have been disappointing. As I said, total shareholder return has materially underperformed the SP 500 and proxy peers over one year, three year, five year and 10 year periods. Uh, Disney shares are currently trading at an eight year low. Operating performance has deteriorated, including a 50% decline in adjusted EPS since fiscal year 2018. We believe that the current investor sentiment at Disney is low, reflecting the hard truth that Disney is a company in crisis. It faces many challenges that weigh on the company's investment prospects. Um, Let's see. While we acknowledge that Disney, like many media companies, is undergoing a challenging pivot to streaming, we believe that many of the company's current problems are self-inflicted and need to be addressed. So I'm just kind of curious, right? So you obviously acknowledge that their backlog of content is incredibly valuable, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are your thoughts on them? I don't necessarily know if like making a pivot to streaming is how I would word it. I would say they are just you know starting up a streaming business too, or they have built a streaming business to really... Uh, use a lot of their content that was just basically sitting on the shelf. I mean, what is there a better way that they could have gone about doing that? Or would you have, um, you know, advised against doing that? Yes. What you just described would have been a good idea. It's not what they did. So they could have put up all their content, waited till it came off contract from other things, um, which they did. And that's why they didn't launch Disney Plus uh, super early is because they needed to make sure that they had all the content that they have. So they have that now in Disney Plus. They have some super fans of things and having a smaller audience and using it that way, whether it's using a, like a Disney um, sort of like an Amazon Prime thing, you know, using that, also connecting it with like credit cards and things that they already have branded with other people and stuff for our, um, would have made a lot of sense. I mean, they have a vacation club business. They have parks businesses. They like I said, they brand some credit cards with people that they use. They have people who are interested in their backlog from that who'd be willing to pay a, a pretty high price, you know, um, for being able to see all that, right? People have kids and all those things. However, it would not reach the levels of like a Netflix in terms of amount of people watching. And it would also skew somewhat to being more US based um, just because of the price and some other things too than what they're going to get. Um, the issue is that they have things like Hulu, which, you know, since the Fox thing, they now have very large ownership in that and presumably they'll have almost total ownership eventually when they do a deal with um, Comcast for that. Uh, but the, the so like ESPN and Hulu are different sorts of businesses and they're obviously connecting that with Disney Plus and trying to sell it along with it as part of it as a bundle too. Uh, it's the amount of spending on the, um, original programming, right for for Disney, and we may have peaked in this. We probably did peak in terms of original programming for, um, just the amount of things created last year. 
because you have Amazon, Netflix, and uh, Disney, among others, creating a lot of stuff, spending a lot of money for things that might not have very big returns. Uh, Disney's not been the most aggressive even on some particular things. I mean, I think on an individual show basis or something, probably Amazon spent more. But um, that is kind of the issue, that it's, they spent a lot of money for Disney Plus when they already had a very large backlog of things. And maybe redoing, um, you know, uh, sequels to some things that they have uh, would make sense as occasionally something that would come out, you know, if they had something that every couple months, every two or three months, they had something coming out and if was closer to the Disney brand that way, that would make a lot of sense. Um, they've done a lot with, you know, whether it's Marvel or Star Wars or whatever original series that are expensive and, you know, that's different than using some things that, uh, you're having people mostly watching it for the back catalog. The other thing is that you might have more churn with people who are coming onto it for some particular thing that you put on it. Um, and I think, you know, that's more extreme in cases like HBO Max um, could be somewhat with like Paramount. Um, it's definitely true with with Peacock, which put some horror movies on their service. Um, so I think that's where a lot of the cost comes in. And the costs have probably been very, very high. So it says Tryon believes that it is well positioned to facilitate positive change at Disney, given our experience investing in and serving on the board of directors of blue chip companies and working collaboratively with management teams and boards to optimize corporate governance, strategy operations, and capital allocation. We recognize that Disney is undergoing a lot of change quickly and are not trying to create additional instability by replacing Bob Iger. We believe Disney is at a crossroads. It can decide to fight the addition of one qualified board member or work together with trying to create sustainable long-term value at Disney. Disney is trading at an eight-year low, which we talked about. Okay. Um, and going over their investments and their history with being an activist shareholder, Trying Investments, where Nelson Peltz served on the board, company total shareholder return versus SP 500 during board tenure, uh, 900 basis points annual TSRL performance. That's uh, obviously pretty good. Going through their case study at Procter & Gamble. All very large, dominant brands. Very large businesses. Let's see. We can go to the... Okay. Um, let's see. Disney's total shareholder return consistently underperforms. Uh, let's see. Disney's financial performance has been disappointing. This is the part that is, is pretty interesting. So fiscal okay. year revenue. Now this is adjusted revenue. I don't know what they're adjusting for. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. But uh, fiscal year 2018, revenue 59.4 billion. Fiscal year 2022, 83.7 billion. Sounds good, right, Jeff? That's a 41% change. Well, if you look at the other side, all right, talk about, uh, you know, uh, everything above, you know, the gross profit line is going to tell you about the business that you're in and the quality of the business you're in. Everything below tells you about the people running the business. Well, adjusted EBITDA down 23%, SGNA up 85%, free cash flow down 89%, adjusted EPS uh, down 50%. Oof. 
Average diluted shares up 21%. So basically it looks like they're getting squeezed from every single angle. This is probably exactly what you do not want to see when you're looking at a company, right? Revenue up, but the quality of earnings has dramatically declined. Right. They, cause they acquired uh, Fox. Mm -hmm. So this is comparing it before the Fox acquisition to after. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts directly on that? Uh, I mean, it, it helps them in some ways, but they took on all the entire business and, you know, um, it, it's very much a horizontal merger. So it improved their position overall, both on movie stuff that I talked about, but also in terms of, um, uh, the things with streaming. Right. So it also helped them with that, which is another reason why they might've done it. Um, I don't know. I mean, the prices that they paid and stuff for all the acquisitions they did under Iger were not low prices. And that's part of the reason why the stock hasn't always done amazingly. And uh, the other issue is, you know, they don't want to break up the company. Mm -hmm. And so it's involved in totally different things. Um, and a lot of the value going forward might be in terms of stuff that is more closely associated with Disney with that brand and not with the things in which they own, which they don't use the Disney brand. Uh, but they obviously don't want to break it up. And I think that's kind of the thing that the company's facing is it w doesn't want to break itself up. So it also wants to go into the streaming stuff. And I think if it was just Disney alone, it would be less um, committed to pushing into streaming as much as it is. I think part of that is because of how much they own of cable channels, including ESPN, especially, but, um, and also of what they own with uh, like broadcast television, you know, so they own a, a TV network in the US ABC and they also own affiliates of ABC in most of the large uh, like top 10 type markets. Um, it's not a ton of stations, but they're the, some of the biggest stations. So that kind of thing is probably more of why they're pushing into streaming, I think, as compared to if they only had Disney. And I think they're using Disney Plus to kind of pull these other things along and help them out, which is what you see with Hulu which probably has a lot to do with protecting ABC and other, um, uh, not just the broadcast things, but also the cable channels that they have. And um, in addition to that, you have the ESPN thing. So it's kind of trying to put together, bundle yourself that way. So they're more in a position like a Comcast or something that, that owns a lot of different things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fiscal year 2023 guidance raises serious questions. Can management forecast appropriately? Does Disney have the ability to effectively manage its business? Why didn't Disney's CFO issue a warning beforehand? Uh, so basically, they do not like the guidance that they gave for 2023, which on a revenue basis was 5% lower than the consensus of analysts and operating income guidance was 13% lower as well uh, than what analysts were uh, you know, predicting. So they're building a thesis for basically, you know, things are not going so well uh, at Disney. Uh, Disney has underperformed under this board's watch. While Bob Iger just rejoined the board, he has essentially served on the board since 2000 with only a short spite from January to October 2022, 10 months. Uh, there are still several current directors and members of management who oversaw and approved some of Disney's worst corporate governance and strategic failures, including overpaying for the Fox acquisition, the expanding streaming losses, and over-the-top compensation packages granted to Bob Iger. Uh, so Bob Iger's been there for 22 years. 
Let's see. And if you look at everybody, uh, has basically underperformed the S and P 500 during their time. It looks like at Disney. Yeah, well, that's because the endpoint that you're choosing. Although the stock is yeah. not particularly cheap, so um, yeah, that's a big issue that they have. Um, my memory of uh, Nelson Pelt's presentations is that they're all about the stock like this. So they're all they all look like this. They're just a lot about like why didn't they guide? What's how far are they down versus what they were before? Things like that. Um, so this kind of comparison is what they normally do. Let's see. Well, I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on that though? I mean, so they're pointing out that analysts. We're expecting, you know, a certain revenue and operating income number. I mean, we know why that happened. We don't know all the machinations behind the scenes, but the CFO presumably wanted to warn. Chapik didn't want to, or it was orchestrated so that they could get rid of Chapik by doing it. So, I mean, there was to bring in Iger and to be um, who the CFO was supporting instead of the CEO. So, I mean, whether it was because they told him you should... Um, warn about this stuff and he didn't or they set him up to fail or what but that's what it was we we know the story there it's gonna make a good uh book one day to hear the behind the scenes right <laughs> yeah so i mean it was a dispute between the ceo and cfo i'm mm -hmm. sure the stories will be different about what who says what but that's what it was mm -hmm. okay a strong case for a change at disney uh number one capital allocation since 2018 eps has been cut in half despite 162 billion spent on m a CapEx and content approximately equal to Disney's entire current market cap. Wow, that's that's a lot. Uh, management has shown poor judgment on recent M&A, including overpaying for the $52 billion 21st Century Fox assets and bidding aggressively for Sky. And increased uh, financial leverage and deteriorating cash flow resulted in eliminating the dividend, even as COVID receded and Park's EBITDA surpassed historical levels. Uh, two, corporate governance, poor shareholder engagement, Disney's board and leadership consistently failed on succession planning, uh, over-the-top compensation practices. I wonder how much uh, a director gets paid for Disney. What are their director fees? Let's see. Uh, M&A and growth investments have been earnings dilutive. Kind of talked a lot about that. And they make a case for Disney overpaying for the Fox assets. So it looks like they paid... Was that 26.5 times? Is that what that's saying? For, that's what it says, yeah. Yeah, for uh, Fox's assets. Yeah. I mean, it's the last it's the last kind of merger of movie studio things that's probably possible. I mean, they merged two of the biggest movie studios around into each other. It also secured stuff for Hulu and it secured stuff for Marvel things, like I said. So, I mean, it was a very like anti-competitive type merger. So, I'm... Um, think it would be hard to find one to do otherwise um do you think it's too soon to declare it a failure i don't think the merger will be a failure in terms of what they get from it i think that the price might be too high but they paid high prices for most of the things that they did so i mean that's basically what Iger's claim to fame was right i mean they just went on a huge m a spree when he was ceo yeah but the things that they bought are likely to have value you know continuing i mean they they um, bought Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, so the Star Wars, and they bought Fox, which also is, as I explained here, they'll buy the stake in Hulu and everything. So these are things that are likely to have, uh, you know, continuing value for a long time and give them a lot more market power and stuff. Uh, if they, did they pay too much for it? You know, like, would it have been better if they bought back their stock or that they paid dividends or whatever instead of doing this? You know, maybe. Um, Disney also, although he talks about them increasing their leverage and stuff compared to other companies in media, tends to have very low leverage. 
um, you know, in the modern era. Um, so that's another factor too, that, you know, these things are spent that way. But also if you're giving stock up in some of these deals, then it's also questionable because you're valuing the EBITDA stuff on saying that the stock is worth that much. But if you're giving them overvalued stock, it might not be a bad deal. And mm -hmm. I think that in some cases, as we can see here, Disney stock wasn't very cheap if they're giving it up. Um, let's see. Investors are still paying for the Fox deal as Disney works to reduce its leverage. Uh, looks like fiscal year 2022 actual 2.7 times uh, their uh, net debt and uh, net debt to EBITDA. Disney is also expected to buy Comcast $9 billion stake in Hulu in 2024, which will keep its leverage profile well above historical levels for years. And now they're, you know, questioning their judgment to purchase Sky, um, saying that it would have permanently impaired shareholder value. Their final bid in 2018 was 34 billion. Jeez, and it says mm -hmm. some analysts today estimate it is currently worth nine billion, 73 percent below Disney's final offer. Mm -hmm. Basically, making a case for uh, deteriorating financial performance and talking about the. Dividend again, Disney had a history of increasing its dividend. In 2020, Disney eliminated its dividend as it faced cash flow challenges caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, as many companies did. A significant streaming investments and its over-levered balance sheet prior to 2020, Disney had paid a dividend for 57 straight years with emphasis placed on growing the dividend. Disney has not provided a timetable for restoring the dividend beyond achieving pre-Fox leverage levels which could take years. The succession process is broken. Blah, blah, blah. Let's see. Executive compensation must be aligned with performance. Wow. From fiscal year 2017 to fiscal year 2021, Bob Iger received $216 million in total compensation despite Disney's poor TSR. Mm -hmm. And they break it down there that you can see in what form his compensation was paid. Um, yeah, some years with stock awards, some was change in pension and deferred compensation. Salary was small as a percentage in most years, but a mm -hmm. large salary too, several, you know, very large base salary. Yeah. Okay, so poo-pooing the streaming strategy, they're concerned with how Disney's streaming strategy has evolved under the board's oversight. Um, say that they... In their view, management has failed to effectively communicate the financial rationale behind the strategic pivot as the profitability guidance has not changed while the change in strategy put significant stress on Disney's balance sheet and cash flow profile. I mean, can we just, you know, I mean, obviously they probably were motivated to go into the streaming business as well because of the multiples that these companies were trading yeah. for, obviously, right? I mean, you had companies like, or funds like Third Point that I think we're pushing for them to do that and, and other businesses as well, uh, or other funds as well that wanted them to do that to get uh, a Netflix-like multiple. Yeah, absolutely. If they put the same amount into content, like if they put the same amount of CapEx and parks or something, as opposed to content, they got credit for it as not being like a real expense when it went to content. People just said subscribers are up, that's good. If they said CapEx was gonna be higher and other things to drive growth, people wouldn't have been happy about it. So it was valued differently, you know? And that's happened to all these companies, Netflix, and all of those are down a lot too. Disney's not the only one, obviously. We fear Disney is over-earning in domestic parks to subsidize streaming losses. Disney has historically relied on price to drive growth and margin at domestic parks. 
which we believe is an unsustainable growth strategy. Basically making a case, and that's the last slide, that they're worried about their cost structure. They're worried about uh, over-earning at the parks to subsidize the streaming business. They are worried about oversight at the board. Seems like there's a lot of things to change at Disney. I mean, what do you think he wants them to do with the streaming business? Just get costs more in line? Is it more of a thing to like spin out? I mean, what do you think he wants them to do with that? I mean, he's making a case for their costs continuing to go up, but he's not really advocating for stopping the streaming business or anything like that. What do you think he wants done? I mean, stop spending on content. Mm -hmm. I mean, they may be able to reach break even faster if they reduce spending on content. The other thing that they mentioned a little bit is that it's sort of the primary way to get out of a lot of Disney's previous content, which is true. So they've shifted more and more stuff over to putting out Disney Plus instead of doing it in different ways like they used to with cable channels and things like that that would have had it. So if you were a shareholder in Disney right now, would you like this? Would you agree with this? What would you be thinking? Well, I don't like it, but I would agree to it. Um, I mean, I, it's they have a large board. It's easier just to put them on the board. Um, and, you know, the idea is, you know, to... Uh, be very friendly with him and stuff and do that. And, but that's not the strategy that they took. So I think that one would make the most sense. Um, even though it'd be irritating for the board to deal with, you can't win votes on the board or anything. So it doesn't matter all that much. Um, so, I mean, that would make the most sense. Why do you not like it? I just, I wouldn't, Pelts being on the board or something, wouldn't make me more likely to like it at any company that he's been at or anything like that. Um, it's it's fine, but you know, he draws a lot of attention to it. Talks a lot about the stock, as you saw, it's all financial performance stuff. I don't think there's any strategy for what to do about it. Um, so it just has someone there who's talking about the stock price all the time and stuff. So, I mean, that might be good for the board. That might be the best thing to do. But I don't think that it's, you know, that he's going to introduce things that would be a better way of running the company or something like that. But he can advocate for shareholders that might not get much attention on the board normally. So you think it's more of like a, um, advocating for like like a, like an accountability thing then, like trying to you know keep them accountable, get the costs in line, change the compensation structure, stuff like that, as opposed to like actual strategy. I mean, is that sort of the how it is with all of these uh, activist funds that try to make changes at these companies? I mean, it depends on the fund, but I think he just wants them to report better earnings, pay a dividend, and get a higher multiple. So um, I think he'd say pay Iger less money, find another person, make sure that Iger's gone within two years like they said he would be, find another person to do it, pay them less um, than you are, uh, than you have been here, um, and, you know, to think about uh, reducing spending on content and things like that. Um, and increasing, you know, margins and all of that. Mm -hmm. Got it. Well, we'll, uh, we have two, uh, theme park related or, you know, traction related businesses to continue to follow up on. So we got six flags and now we have Walt Disney that are both, uh, facing outside pressure from activists to, uh, make changes at the company. Another business that I think we've talked a little bit about on the podcast, sometimes it would show up on our screens because uh, it did become a micro cap. Uh, Party City, have you followed this company at all recently? 
Josh? It's bankrupt, right? Yeah. So they're they're going through, yeah. through chapter eleven is uh, I believe what they announced that they're uh, going to pursue. So I was kind of curious if you know you have any just general thoughts on it, and you know companies that announce that they're going to restructure and what that can mean for shareholders and uh, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, for the last three years or so, it's looked like it's definitely going to be in bankruptcy. It's a highly leveraged business. I forget if it averaged about one point five to two billion, probably in debt over the last most last decade. And uh, I think operating income probably wasn't much better than about two hundred um, million. But the cash flow numbers were even worse than that, and in recent years, really bad. So cash flow from operations was really, really poor for a long time. Versus debt, we can see here. You know, the best years for cash flow from operations were 200 something. But as you can see on an average basis, you take any three year average of cash flow from operations. So that's even before they do anything with CapEx. You're getting numbers that are like one tenth of their debt load. So even if you go back to things had to improve, even from what they were looking at at 2013, 14, 15, for this not to be a risk of bankruptcy. Um, you know, I've talked about that with like Transdime, which runs the same sort of thing in that cash flow from operations. Uh, debt's like maybe 15 times cash flow from operations. Um, that's a business that has higher earnings every single year and all sorts of things. But it's a dangerous amount of debt. And they had a dangerous amount of debt at this company for a long time, and it's not very cash flow generative. And then if you're a retailer, as soon as it looks like you're going to bankruptcy, you do because <laughs> obviously no one's going to do business with you anymore. You know, So if you fail quickly, just like we've seen with like Bed Bath & Beyond too, um, too, same thing. So you don't th do you think this was sort of the final nail in the coffin from COVID, or do you think this was going to happen eventually and it just sort of sped up the process? Um, I think it was going to happen eventually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, even looking at their long term debt, and then on top of that, having a ton in uh, capital leases as well. Yeah, I think you know uh, tighter financial conditions could speed it up both for Party City and, and for Bed Bath & Beyond, but I don't think that COVID itself is really the culprit. Um, on certain reported income level stuff, it does look you know, like they dropped a lot from um, COVID and all that that you can see. Uh, but on the cash flow stuff, it was always a real problem. Um, so, I mean, as you can see, the last time they generated you over much over a hundred million cash flow from operations in 2017. So, and then with the CapEx that they have, that still would be a very high debt load that they were carrying at that time. So they've been over leveraged the whole time. And I don't think they've, if things kept getting better from 2017 on, maybe it would be different, but I think they've been deteriorating for a while and they've been, it's been very dangerous for the common stock. It's always looked like it could go to zero. Why do you think they ran the business like this? Are you ever shocked when you see stuff like that, like 10 times debt to cash flow in a real retail business that arguably you could argue the future probably wasn't going to look as bright as the past? Top of that, having a ton in capital leases, which if you're a retail business, you probably can't avoid. But like, do you think this would almost fall on the lines of like being egregious on how they were running the business and just being completely reckless with it? Well, I don't know what the history was before 10 years ago or whatever. So what the debt's from and everything. But um, I mean, this is like what an LBO of a retailer looks like. So um, yeah, I mean, LBOs are risky things that way. And this is what that looked like. So I assume that it was something, you know, similar to that. Um, and we talked about that with even with Six Flags or something. But it's trickier with a retailer, definitely, than with some other things. 
Um, you know, it's, it's a lot easier with a, uh, like a theme park business or something because of the, or, or movie theaters or whatever, because in normal years, the cash flow from operations is really high. There's more discretion on the CapEx stuff and you're not tying up a lot of things on the balance sheet. Um, but you know, but there's also things that aren't leveraged, uh, that are, that are leveraged, but I should say are not because they intended to put financial leverage on it, but just how they chose to run the business from day one. So like you have Carvana, which I assume will fail as well. I don't know if they'll raise capital or something, so they won't officially file for bankruptcy there. You know, it depends on if people that that's one that people are more interested in as a business. So it's possible, you know, I mean, AMC raised capital at one point. So it's possible if financial conditions are a little better, people are a little excited about a really fast growing company that they could avoid actually filing for bankruptcy by just massively diluting. But that one has also been running away that, you know, would it, you, you're headed for bankruptcy type stuff. So it's a different story. Party City is more of like a no growth thing with a lot of debt on and stuff. But this one pursued a lot of debt and a lot of growth, even though it required constantly going back to borrow more money. That's the only way that they were going to be able to stay in business. Gosh, I'm sure it's done well this year. We could look at the year to date because year to date is when all these kinds of stocks are up. So I assume the stock is up a lot since the end of last year, is it? For Carvana, okay, yeah, it, it's up from it looks like what to start the year at four dollars and sixty cents and hit a high of about eight bucks. Now we're currently sitting around seven dollars at six dollars and ninety eight cents. Yeah, so you were down like ninety some percent last year, probably ninety five percent. I mean, basically almost everything you lost last year, but you're probably up by you know way over fifty percent or something this year if you bought on January first. But look at this damn chart. Oh my goodness. So for people listening, in August of 2021, or it looks like July of 2021, they hit a high of $337. And then it was just, it wasn't even a gradual fall. It was just a, a pretty steep black diamond ski hill fall all the way down to you know where we are today. And that's what we talk about sometimes where sometimes people are concerned about credit things and then other times they're just not concerned about it. And um, there was a period where they weren't concerned at all. And then now is a period where they're concerned for companies that have th these issues. So um, Carvana, fast growing company, unit economics looked like it was possible the business could work at scale. Um, so there's a real business there, but the everything about how it grew and what it used and stuff just suggests it was always headed for bankruptcy. Um, this company was growing like 100% a year I think if we look annually, like for many years, which is not a good sign, right? And then um, it was cash flow negative virtually every quarter of its existence. I think it managed to generate cash from operations in like one quarter or something. As you can see on an annual basis, it's always negative. But I don't even think that on a quarterly basis, it's consistent. It's managed to do like two quarters in a row that it's done cash flow from operations. Um, and then obviously it's heavy CapEx. And then from a balance sheet perspective, the other issue is it's very low quick assets. So it's all inventory. So it's inventory and property planning and equipment that you're carrying. It's not cash and accounts receivable, right? So it's the stuff that would be easier to, you know, if you have a lot of cash and receivables, that, that's very different than if you have a lot of things like inventory and stuff. Now their inventory is all cars, which are a very marketable form of inventory, but it's still definitely a problem and uh, just way too fast growth and stuff and you know that's sort of the two ways that you see it is what we saw like with party city where there wasn't growth but it was just kind of a crippling debt load and nothing good was happening with the company anyway 
And uh, this company was growing too fast and using too much debt to do it. But it kind of needed to probably because in the early years, if you look at the unit economics, they're not good enough without a lot more scale. So they only get better each year because of how fast they're growing, which is something to keep in mind. I mean, if you double the size of what you're doing, then usually the, the, you have some advantages to scale from that. But they had to keep doing that to get to a place where it would make sense. So um, there's a reason from a business perspective of why they were doing it this way. But from a financial perspective, it's it's very risky. Uh, not just very. I mean, they, they had to stop at some point, and they never did. They never got in a way to slow down their growth safely. I was going to say. So, I mean, do you think it becomes hard to do that because you understand because you're using capital markets that you're trading at an insane multiple that's going to reward you uh, for that growth, or that's exactly what they're you know placing on the stock? Does it become sort of one of those like uh, I don't know? You kind of like the Hotel California, you could check out, but you could never leave, right? Where it's like worrying because you are using capital markets to fund your growth. So you just got to keep, you know, putting on the growth. You don't want to slow things down. I mean, where this is eventually like the end result that happens because basically the tide goes out or sentiment changes in the market or whatever. And then it finally happens. I mean, like literally you hear, you just said, you know, slow down your growth to maybe generate a little bit more cash but it doesn't ever seem like businesses do that because in that growth phase they're trading at an insane multiple right they're using capital markets i mean could you think of instances where companies actually strategically you know sort of turn the spigot back a little bit and you know slowed their expenses and everything to become more cash flow positive i mean like literally what is the end goal when businesses do this well that is actually the recipe for how you prevent bankruptcy generally if you look at the sort of we talked about z-score and things like that if you look at what's in there and what predicts being able to turn a company around that's headed to bankruptcy within the next let's say you feel like you're going to be in bankruptcy within less than two years and maybe a lot sooner than that um it's exactly that it's to slow down asset growth convert more of the assets into the um current assets that you have especially quick assets move things up the balance sheet um and uh to do certain other things too that you can push out some of the um, liabilities that you have, even that means having higher costs on the liabilities, but they're further out. Often um, reported income, now this company loses more and more as it grows, but if they had income, you know, reported income numbers might get somewhat worse at the same time that cash flow figures get better and especially balance sheet stuff improves. Um, so the, the one people know about is like um, Dempster Mill where Buffett brought someone in to do that. And if you listen to what he did and stuff, that's typical of how you turn around a business that's headed for bankruptcy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I read some other book, too, that was about that particular issue about predicting bankruptcy uh, risks and stuff. And it did go into one particular one where someone used some of the stuff like the Z-score to figure out, well, OK, if I can lower this, uh, if I can raise the score, that's how I'm going to run the business instead of trying to report better earnings and stuff. Because he was brought in with the idea that the the board and stuff knew that they were headed for bankruptcy. And so they no longer were looking to have someone who was growing the business a lot and stuff, but basically come in here and try to get us to, to avoid bankruptcy. So, you know, if you make that kind of pivot to go to a completely different person and do that, then you may. Um, we can look at quarterly here so you have some idea of what I'm talking about with um, like the issues with Carvana. So if we look quarterly at the balance sheet, for instance, right? So as you'll see here, some of the issues, right, is that so like um, 
you can see the growth in some of the things, right? As as um as COVID happens, for instance, we have the beginning is March 2020 is basically before COVID in terms of they went their balance sheet wouldn't reflect anything from COVID, and then you see what happens initially after that. You can see that in like 2021, you have huge growth in in inventory. In fact, um, in a period of like not that what do they have there? A period of about a year, they tripled their inventory, I guess, right? But then you have a smaller increase in accounts receivable, almost no increase in cash and equivalents. And then if you look at the liabilities, uh, you can see that those went up a lot faster than that. So there's some increase also in like property planning equipment, especially in the later, uh, the more recent period. So you have a big increase in those sorts of things. Those things aren't really things that can turn to cash all that fast either. Um, so like the, the most obvious way to look at it is the cash flow from operations that we talked about, but you can also look at the balance sheet. Sometimes the sequential movement in the balance sheet is helpful to understand what's going on and if things are getting better or worse, um, because there are things the company could do that could make it better in terms of avoiding the risk. Right. But obviously if you look at the stock price and everything, it wasn't factoring in much of a risk of bankruptcy the way that it should have been, um, in, in you know, my view on that. So. Um, the biggest issue, as always, is massive asset growth, right? So if you just have massive asset growth, especially credit um, finance, massive asset growth at a company, that's the most likely tip off that something really bad is going to happen. I'm just trying to think of like companies that, you know, they successfully pivot and, and turn it off and, you know, become an incredibly successful business afterwards. I mean, think about like WeWork and all the problems that they went through. I mean, I guess, I mean, could you say Tesla? I mean, they're still trying to get it, say, multiple uh, but they've definitely come down a bit. But see, all of these are unusual in that they're caused by having like 0% interest rates mm -hmm. and attitudes about that because the businesses don't make sense. So like I was saying, Carvana, it makes sense at a certain level of scale. Um, I mean, at first it looked like it didn't. I mean, I looked at the company from very early on and you'd argue, oh, they don't have the same economics on a unit basis as other car dealers and stuff. I don't see how this is going to work. But they were able to make that look better each time. Um, because they were growing so fast that it really did improve things because there are real advantages to scale that way. There are some real advantages to scale with, um, with WeWork and stuff, like the cost for um, the property planning equipment in the places that you'll be leasing out. So like the furniture and stuff, you can get big discounts on that stuff and have much lower costs. You can in, have internal design things and stuff for a lot of that stuff. I mean, you can bring down the cost per square foot of what they're doing. So each of these things could make some sense at some tremendous scale. Tesla in the modern era against other car makers, there's no way that they can do it without being very big. You're not, you're not uh, able to compete with them. So all these had to scale up quickly, and that's why they're pursuing that sort of thing. Um, it's the same thing as with network effect type stuff. You pursue it because there are advantages to that. Anything where the, you, know, you have these advantages to scale, then you have to do that. The disrupting things are kind of the biggest one that way because if they're going up against competitors that already have a lot of scale, the minimum level of scale they need to be in business is actually pretty big and they have to get there somehow. They can do it with a lot of stock or a lot of debt, but they have to get through a lot of losses. And the other thing is, does it really make much of a difference? We talk about, you know, capital light things and all of that. If you're doing things that require large amounts of upfront spending versus, but won't result in having a lot of assets versus things that have a lot of assets. So, you know, if you take seriously like what, Nelson Peltz was saying with um, Disney, you know, that they've lost $11 billion cumulatively. 
Um, that's pre-tax stuff, and they have things that pay taxes, so it's not that amount after taxes. But still, if you think about that, and then you adjust for the fact of when those losses happen versus when the profits will start coming in, it's not that different than putting in a lot of capital into the business, mm-hmm. right? Because you have all these losses up front that you lose, you know, billions and billions of dollars up front. Yes, you get a business out on the other side, but we're treating these things like they're capital light sometimes. Um and they're really not uh, because you have this huge upfront spending, which is much the same thing as if you put a lot of capital in the business to start it off. Now, Tesla is not super capital light. Carvana is very capital heavy, as you know, car dealers are. And so those are a little bit different, a little bit more obvious that we can look at the risks to them running into problems. But there's other companies, you know, the, um, like I said, with the WeWork or the um, food delivery companies or the ride sharing companies or something where if there wasn't continued access to capital um they required large losses for a long time to get to where the business made a lot of sense for them so it runs into the same sort of problem um it looks different on some metrics than something that has a lot of risk that way but you can certainly see how it wouldn't work out um because you you at some point may not be able to get you know, a lot of, uh, to have financing on the terms that you had before. And with stock, that's really hard. If you're like diluting over time, it's really hard to figure out what that will cost you in the future. Right. Because at some point, you know, there's some years where everyone it's easy to IPO things and stuff. And there's other years where it isn't. So if we saw the like private things that venture capitalists back, uh, venture capitalists back that aren't in public markets, maybe a lot more of them would kind of fall into the category of the, those sorts of things I'm talking about where they have to outrun to get to a certain size and they want to do that before they're kind of shut out of being able to raise money. And so that's kind of what the race is. You know, if you knew that you'd always be able to raise money, then you could take a lot more time. But if you're afraid that you're not going to be able to, then uh, you might have to get to break even faster and it might mean doing things differently than just growing revenue. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy. You look at like a company like Uber and they're still losing, you know, about 500 million in 2021 and this business has just been subsidized uh you know by capital markets for their losses for so long it's like at what point is that going to change and become a you know profitable sustainable business that could operate on its own without needing any sort of outside capital um yeah i don't know i mean to your point about a lot of these companies not even existing if they didn't have outside capital um, it's like, are these even like viable businesses? Yeah. And, and some very well may be, I mean, um, when we're talking about with the Disney's transition to streaming and stuff, that's how you do it because, you know, it's internally done. Um, a lot of cable channels lost a lot of money early on. Um, but were backed by companies in media that had other sources, of earnings and of uh, cash flow and were able to finance them until they got up to the scale that they needed to right internally and that's you know how most of them work because they need a lot of scale um we haven't seen things in the past you know before the last decade or so where these things were public the whole time and losing all this money um usually they were inside of some other company and they were saying this is what we're doing you know and so, um, so, you know, Disney plus might look a lot more like Uber than people realize on the inside in terms of what it's trying to do, but it's mixed into a bigger company and, um, has a different shareholder base and all of that. Do you ever feel like as a, you know, hardcore value investor 
that you'll never find yourself in a situation where you buy a stock at like let's say like i'm just picking endpoints like you know five dollars and ride it all the way up to 350 dollars just because of like your own principles will probably never put you in a situation for that to happen i mean you think about buffett's quote-unquote venture investments and i think like they were still you know profitable right like there's a, a value investor that i know that he kind of I will say half jokingly told me he wants to write a blog post about if he never heard of Warren Buffett, he'd probably be a lot richer because he would have probably thrown some money in, in like, uh, you know, some of these names or whatever. But just his core principles have never allowed him to do anything like that. I mean, it's like you look at a lot of these businesses and what were investors thinking? You know, I mean, it was just, I guess, growth on a revenue basis at all costs. But do you think like your principles kind of put you in a bucket where it's like you would never invest in something like this so it's like you would never be able to you know ride a company like that from like five dollars to you know three hundred fifty dollars of course i'm just picking two endpoints but or beginning Mm -hmm. an endpoint but do you ever think about something like that yeah i mean i haven't invested in things that have gone up that much that quickly certainly you know that doesn't happen so um a lot of times the reason why it does is because the market's wrong Mm-hmm. Um, which is what happened here. And the reversal usually happens in about as much time or faster, you know, in, in terms of how steep the drop is. Um, so, I mean, there is a thing to consider here, which is, so, you know, they're growing a hundred, they're growing a hundred percent a year for a while and stuff. And sometimes with these businesses, one of the things to think about is yes, there's customer demand for it. Customers like it. Right. Mm hmm. Um, but the reason you might be growing faster than everyone else is because you're doing something that they are unwilling to do because it's not smart. And the easiest way to take market share and to grow a lot faster than everybody else is to do something that's, that's dumb, but that customers really like, right? And so that's true whether we're talking about Disney Plus or we're talking about Carvana or whatever. Of course, customers would love to have a low price having all the content in one place and whatever instead of monetizing in different ways but if it doesn't make back the cost of the production that you have it just you know it doesn't make sense and so a lot of people you know love these things with streaming love carvana the experience of that and uh you know uh, certainly ride sharing and stuff it's changed things for people that way but just because customers love something doesn't mean that it's a good idea and what how you can grow a lot faster than others in your industry is by doing something they're not willing to do you know mm-hmm. the most obvious example of the ones we talked about that way is we work there's plenty of other companies in the industry had been for a long time they weren't doing what we work was doing because they thought it was a bad idea mm-hmm. do you think value investing has become almost less competitive just the way that the markets have been over the past you know five years with you know growth at all costs you know businesses like this that go from five to 10 bucks to 350 uh, uh, because, you know, investors are rewarding um, stuff like that. And of course, interest rates were a lot lower, but do you think value investing in general has become less competitive? Uh, no, I'd say not in general. If you look at like the 13 Fs of famous value investors or famous investors and stuff, it would seem that it would become less competitive, you know, but they're managing a lot of money. I think a lot of the competition comes from smaller things. Um, we've talked about like more quant based things, uh, a lot of that. So I think that the prices aren't all that different than I'm used to for some of the value, smaller, whatever stuff. Uh, a lot of it 
this time has been in certain high growth um, compounder type stuff. And that's where you've had these really high like price to sales ratios and things like that. But I think there's, uh, I mean, I think it was easier to invest probably as a value investor 20 years ago than today. And I think that much of that is just because there's a certain amount of money that was willing to buy any sort of things that look statistically cheap and stuff. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily that much easier. And for me, the main competition is usually really um, like private equity. You know, that that's the thing that takes companies out of the market and often does it to companies that you might otherwise want to buy. And they might do it at a higher price because they're willing to use debt and stuff. And, um, you know, that's the other one that's a source of problems for that way. But I'd say like, yeah, quants and private equity and stuff is more the competition. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because I wanted to bring up, um, I was reading uh, Greenlight Capitals, uh, their Q4 mm -hmm. letter, and uh, good for him. He had a, a great year. Uh, Greenlight Capital Funds returned 36.6%. And I've heard reports, I've read reports that he's, finally back above his high watermark. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I like this line right here. So he says 2020 was an exceptionally good year. In many ways, it was our best ever. And is most comparable to 2001, the year after the last technology bubble popped before going into all the glorious details. Let us simply say, and I, this is my favorite part, we are probably not as smart as we appeared in 2022, but we are probably not as dumb as we appeared in 2000. 18 either the market environment as we have been highlighting turned extremely favorable for our strategy in a period that immediately followed one that was extremely unfavorable for our strategy but he was talking about the reason i asked you about you know value investing becoming a little bit less competitive because he was talking about this how many investors that have historically had a value bent either adapted retired or went out of business Value investing as an industry is unlikely to ever fully recover. The outflows into passive and other strategies were debilitating. Uh, prospectively, we believe this is a positive for our strategy as we face much less competition than we did a few years ago. Um, so I was just curious to hear your thoughts on, on that and just how you kind of see the overall state of... Uh, the value investing market and just value investors in general. Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree with the part about the, as like an industry, it might not recover um, with the outflows and the things to passive and everything. I don't think that you'll see a lot of like, I don't see a lot of future for like actively managed value funds. If stuff is done, I think, like I said, more quantitative things, there might be some things that are more open only to, um, uh, you know, people who can invest in hedge funds and stuff, but I don't see it as something that's going to be marketed to the public a lot. So last thing I wanted to go over, uh, because I wanted to, I made a declaration to everybody on the podcast, always constantly be talking about stocks and potential ideas, every single podcast. Uh, I thought it was a good time to, uh, go over, um, Charlie Munger's three places to find stocks. We've spoken a lot about this on the podcast. Uh, he told Monish Pabrai, Monish told this to. Uh, somebody on his YouTube or a Motley Fool interview that Munger had recommended uh, study carefully spinoffs. But the first one was really look at what other great investors are buying, uh, focus on the cannibals, so the companies that are buying back a lot of their stock. And then the third one was uh, carefully study spinoffs. And I guess we could hit on the third one quickly. Uh, have you 
come across any spinoffs or anything that looks interesting for 2023? Uh, no, I don't believe so. So we could really skip past that one, but I wanted to go over Data Roma and see, mm-hmm. uh, especially since the end of the year, you know, what were the top buys and kind of look to see what other investors are, are purchasing other smart investors. Uh, let's see. So the top buys last quarter, Q4 2022. Uh, we could click it right there to expand it. And Microsoft was apparently the top buy. Currently trading 25 times earnings, even sales, eight and a half times, even free cash flow, 27 times. Huge company, uh, 1.7 trillion. And uh, look at those gross margins. Great gross margins, great operating margins. I don't know what mm-hmm. we could exactly draw from this. Is there anything that looks interesting to you? I mean, what could be possibly, uh, you know, uh, attractive? At I mean, it's a higher valuation, but it's just a great business to own. I don't necessarily know. It's not a value stock or anything like that, but it was uh, the top buy in Q4 of 2022. Is there anything that looks interesting yeah. to you about it? Uh, yeah, I mean... Looks good and everything. I, I'd rather own over-the-counter markets, which has similar margins and uh, you know similar growth rates and things like that. And I would just have rather be in that for ten years or something than in something like Microsoft for ten years. But what if that's a size thing? Let's see. Uh, GNRC was the number two. GNRC, Generac Holdings. Uh, what do they do? Are you familiar with this company? Not really. Yeah, me neither. Uh, they design, manufacture, and sell power generation equipment. Um, provides residential automatic standby generators. Okay. Um, yeah. No, I, I don't know. I don't really know the industry. I mean, I've researched a company that's in a, does the, uh, is in a generator business, but is in renting them out, not selling them, you know, so owning a, a fleet of them and, and then, um, um, sort of, uh, refitting them and stuff and repairing them and, uh, you know, leasing them out to people basically. So I've never looked at a business like this that actually is making all of these things and selling them. Is, uh, the leasing business a good business for temporary power stuff? Um, eh. It depends. The problem is that a lot of times you end up with a lot that isn't being used, you know? So, you know, one out of three of your um, things aren't currently being used that are bringing in revenue, you know? And so you end up with sort of a problem that way sometimes. So it's kind of like airlines and stuff. You get kind of a low utilization, you know, like a low load factor. It's not a good year. But yeah, when there's enough demand for it and not oversupplying the industry, it's a good business. Top pick bets. Speaking of supply in the industry, Micron technology we've talked about micron a good amount on the podcast that's the top big bet by super investors and mm-hmm. let's see where are we at on like a, a stock chart down a lot in the last year because there's expectations that next year will be really bad for this industry mm-hmm. yeah so if you look at it, it's like their return on capital almost tracks their the stock price just like up and down up and mm-hmm. down up and down yeah uh, the price isn't too bad though. You know, it's getting down to where it's close to book or something like that. And so you look at like, we can look at the balance sheet to look at like what current assets are and stuff like that. Um, if we look at quarterly, 
Yeah. I mean, so basically book is the, the book in excess of liabilities. So what you're, you know, um, the assets in excess of liabilities because current assets aren't that much over liabilities are only a few billion over. So it's basically the property plan and equipment. Um, I'd probably rather that it be cheaper versus, you know, like current assets and stuff, but it's not, but, um, yeah, I mean, at, at more like book value, tangible book and stuff, it might be interesting. Sure. It's at what? 1.3 times book including goodwill, I think. Mm-hmm. I wonder how low it's ever gone in relation to book. Go to valuation, price to book. Yeah, so it's trading at probably the, a lower point in its history on a price to book basis. Yeah, and if, right. But if you looked at the um, financials for like before, so if you can you do the Excel sheet? Sure. I might be able to see from before um, if we look at like annual going back far in the company's history. We are using QuickFS, and you could download long-term financials yourself. Okay. Yeah, so if you look at ratios, I guess. Yep. Um, you have, like, price to book. Yeah. And how far back do we go? We go back to 2001 or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, you can see that at certain times it's pretty low. Mm -hmm. If you highlight the whole cell, uh, the average is 1.38 over this... Uh, data set from 2003 right but at some points where it's like um has losses and stuff like that how i mean how low does it go so let's see less let's go to circa 2009 and 2008 yeah well <laughs> you get down to you know 0.26 times yeah so Right. So who knows what happens stuff, but I mean, there could be an experience in the next year or something, which is, which there has not been a decline like that since back then, probably. I mean, I expect that it will be worse than we've seen in the 2010s. Like the last one people remember is like five years ago or something. Um, so yeah. Why do you we'll expect see. there to be but, something like that next year or, or in the near term? Uh, just because the amount of, um, demand versus supply in the industry is going to be so bad based on what companies are saying that I think that you could have some real strong price declines. So, um, but this is a cyclical industry where that happens all the time. You're used to seeing it all the time. Well, why I point that out is this is an industry. So um, if we go back to the, uh, we can just go back to the uh, quick address, the, you know, the annual stuff for the overall thing that we can see here. Because people ask a little bit about this. So this is a cyclical industry. You can see a cyclical one by just looking at the uh, return on invested capital chart. It literally looks like a cycle, you know, so you, that's one part of it. But the other part about it is um, one way to tell that it's a commodity type thing in which they make money when supply is tight is usually that you can use revenue um, growth as an indicator of what gross profitability is going to be. So, so this is similar to like the insurance industry, for instance, if you know that premiums are going to be up, then, you know, like the reported profitability is going to be a lot better here. You can see that changes in the revenue growth for a year, um, mean that the earning that the, um, the margins and stuff that you see are very different. So like they don't have good margins in years in which revenue declines, you'll notice. So at lots of other companies, the increase or decrease in revenue for the year doesn't drive so much the level of profitability it's the overall level so like you'll see oh in years where it's pretty big you know 
um, uh, you know, like you could see like in years where they do a billion and a half or whatever at some company, like they do have pretty good profits, but then if it drops in half, they don't. So that could be a very cyclical industry, but they kind of average around a kind of common level that they have that th there's just a level below which they just aren't doing enough business here. You can see that like they dropped 23% in revenue in 2016, right? And margin gross margin dropped 13 points then. Then it recovered by a large amount because they had profitable growth. So what you're going to see is it's rare that revenue will grow and gross margin will get worse. And it's rare that um, revenue will shrink and gross margin will get better. It'll get a lot worse, actually. So that's just showing you like it's pure pricing is when you see that. And, um, and it's pricing of this year versus last year and stuff like that. So, um, it's just an indication of, you know, what that looks like. Um, obviously this is a favorite of some investors. So, and it doesn't look terribly expensive or anything. I mean, it's like we said, 1.3 times book in their 10 year median margin, a uh, 10 year median return on equity is 18%, but even their return on assets to give you an idea is 13. So that's very reasonable. Um, free cash flow is not as good. Free cash flow generation versus earnings is fairly low. So um, on a cash basis, they're not anywhere near 13% median returns, but on uh, a reported basis, they are. So, um, so you know, it's it's getting cheaper and more interesting that way, certainly, yeah. Um, I, I base it off probably book or something like that, I would guess, for a company like this. Could you ever see yourself investing in a business like this? Myself, yeah. I don't know about for a fund or something like that, but yeah, they're... If it gets down to the right price, sure. If it was a net net, I would buy it. Mm -hmm. This one doesn't have much current assets over total liability. So this one wouldn't be a net net unless it dropped to like $4 billion or something. So that's not going to happen. <laughs> but um, but the, but I have I have bought semiconductor stocks before, actually. Not ones that are in as um, competitive markets as this and large scale markets. But I have bought niche semiconductor companies as net nets. So they were, was that in the United States or overseas? Yeah. U.S. Yeah, they can be pretty good as um, net nets because it's similar to like textiles and stuff. Um, the The economics of it are a lot the same. The cycles are extremely short. So sometimes you make a lot of money fast in a stock like that. Um, so, I mean, things could be really bad and then telling you it's going to be really bad next year and stuff. And in the middle of 2024, it could be really good again. It can be as short as like a year and a half that they could go from telling you everything's bad to everything's suddenly good, um, which is like textiles that same way. So um, the cycles are short in this compared to when we talk about most cyclical things we talk about in like materials and things like that have long cycles. Do you think that's why value investors like it? Because you could, if you, you know, time it correctly, the stock goes up a bunch and you know, there's always sort of opportunity. Price to earnings and the price to book are often low when the value investors are buying it. And I also think that there's an exciting possibility of, you know, like the industry could be getting less competitive and better able to communicate with each other what they're doing and all of that kind of stuff. So the, um, the economics aren't too bad if there's less competition. The economics aren't bad at all if there's less competition. And so, um, I think that's the part. Yeah, I haven't heard anyone talking about it saying I expect it to have losses, to have things as bad as it did through a period in the 2000s, right? After the tech bust and all that, they think that the industry has genuinely changed a lot. And you can see, you know, there is 
perhaps a bit of a pattern. And if you look at that return on invested capital graph, you could, if you squint really hard, you could say that there's an upward trend in it over time. If you, if you, however, there's like one, if you exclude one little period, it does look fairly similar. So, I mean, you know, uh, I'm not sure to be completely honest that there is a big difference, but it could be. So obviously, and then people go crazy for the stock at certain times. You can see here, this stock is not even at the price that it was in uh, the dot-com boom. Yeah. I mean, if you're like a active investor where you flip your book a lot or you sort of trade in and trade out of these things, something like this that moves a lot seems like it would be perfect for somebody that's trying to be in situations like that, sort of more of a an active fund, you know, that does a lot of like the multiple re-ratings, how people are currently viewing the situation and stuff like that. Because I mean, look how many, you know, over since 1995, there's, you know, one, two, three, four, I mean, just tons of times where you could, you know, buy and then sell and then, you know, wait for it to come back down the cycle and then buy again. And I know it's much harder than that, but I've always been super shocked that value investors uh, like a lot of uh, like Micron, it seems to be a favorite amongst them. And I was wondering, is that just because, you know, it's, it's buying the, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's just a lot of, uh, opportunity or there's a lot of movement within the stock. Yeah. I mean, if the stock does poorly next year, I might, you, you'd be surprised. You might have them podcast me saying, yeah, it looks good. Buy it. Um, because you know, of how bad things could get, but if that's fully anticipated by people, then, you know, um, the stock won't go down all that much. Um, but you know, if, if we have a recession, that's like technology led as the worst part of the recession, then this could be available to you at a pretty good price possibly. Mm -hmm. So what do you think? $10 a share? Sounds good. Well, it's already very cheap versus like most stocks right now. I mean the, the price to book in the PE and stuff, how many, this is $60 billion company. How many $60 billion companies have price to earnings and price to book like that? Now Intel is pretty cheap too, I think. Um, but um, I can't think of a lot of large companies that uh, will kind of meet the basic value investor, uh, you know, PE price to book kind of cheapness on those measures. So the, you know, the real traditional ones. Yeah. Intel nine times earnings price to book 1.2 times with a return on equity of 21.5. So that's, yeah, that's getting pretty cheap. That is pretty cheap. Yeah, and also we don't know with some of these that people aren't like long Micron and um, Intel and stuff in short like NVIDIA and AMD or something. You know, there could be like things that they're doing in terms of just saying that some things that have very different prices, the things that are cheaper aren't as bad as they look and the things that are more expensive aren't as good as they look. We don't know. I mean, like David Einhorn or something does do long short. You know, so some of these investors, we know that they're just long these things, but some of the attraction to some of the stocks may be more just like quantitative type stuff. And especially if they're working with huge amounts of money, you know, there's a $60 billion company. This is a $120 billion company. You can get in and out of it. And um, if we complain about how high prices are for stocks with what we look at, you can imagine people who have to deal with tens of billions of dollars in market cap, they rarely ever see something at nine times, 10 times PE and one to 1.3 times book. You know, the two companies we just talked about, those are pretty attractive, you know, like a gram number, right? Which is just price to earnings times price to book, right? Both of these actually score well on that. Anything less than like 22, 23 is pretty good. 
And um, so like 15 times earnings, 1.5 times book, something like that, like below that, Graham would say is kind of a value stock. And, uh, you know, both these do well on that. Do you have any thoughts toward pair trades? I think it's how you pronounce it, pair or pairs. Yeah, uh, pair. trades, you know, yeah. I mean, I know you've done a, a related hedge before, right? Mm-hmm. But have you ever done a pair trade? Kind of just like you just referenced uh, Micron and, and Intel. Like maybe you buy one, you short the other. Right. So I don't know about that. Yeah. I mean, if I was going to short things, I'd rather short like, you know, Carvana and short like um, Party City and things like that that I expect to go bankrupt um, than to short things that I thought were valued too high. If things are valued too high in an index that you could short, that might be a different story. But then you don't usually get them to be as outrageous. Um, so I, I think it mostly just affects the the problem with it is it kind of adds, you want to call it volatility or whatever. It, it, even if it doesn't add a lot of risk to you, really, um, I think that it does, it can, as it did with uh, Greenlight, um, make your years that you're bad in even worse, um, and that's not necessarily what people want to see. And then I think it also takes up a lot of your time and effort sometimes for it. Um, I don't know how I would feel about that. Uh, I don't think I'd get too crazed about it the way most people do, that they, you know, obsessed with the shorting thing where, you know, um, the stock's going up and stuff. Okay, it's, you know, it's going up. But, uh, you know, like we could look at Celsius or something like that's a stock someone might short on valuation because it's absurdly overvalued. But it's been absurdly overvalued for a long time. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, you thought that the uh, uh, we thought the uh, you know Celsius was going to come back to Earth last year, and then they announced their new partnership with PepsiCo, and then boom, look at that! I mean, it went from you know uh, ninety six down to fifty. It was coming down, still I think was at like right. ten times sales plus. So it was like ten or fifteen, but now here we are again. It's it's back up above and at all time highs. Yeah, but I mean, it will come down. So, I mean, this thing will collapse eventually at some point. So if you look at the, because you can look at the sales and just see this, what we're talking about here with um, EV to sales and stuff. So EV to sales and price to sales, we're talking about very high levels. Now you could, that could be somewhat misleading. What you should do is take like the quarterly number and then annualize that and everything. Mm -hmm. But if you're over 10 times price to sales, you know, unless there's something about the business that you can see, that means that it's totally unlike any other kind of business that you can't kind of put in any sort of category possible. Um, then that's a price that it's, it's bound to come down from um, just because the growth can't possibly be fast enough to get you to a level that once eventually the price to sales normalizes, you know, cause it's going to be when it's a mature company, it's price to sales is going to be the same as other mature companies. So um you know that it will come down. So people would short things like that. Uh, but, you know, it's growing very rapidly and it has pretty good. A lot of things about it are pretty good. Um, it's the price is crazy, you know. And so those are h- hard to short those particular ones, um, I think, for. Um, I mean, but on the other hand, the ones where people are think the business is bad, you have to be careful about shorting bad businesses where there's not something else wrong with it. Like it's not headed towards bankruptcy because of the way people are running it or it's not a fraud. Because obviously shorting a bad business is dangerous because of mean reversion. And uh, it's fairly easy for a bad looking business to start to generate pretty high returns because you're saying, oh, the price to earnings is crazy. Yeah, but 
the price to sales, the price to book might not be crazy. It might be earning so little and it doesn't take much, you know, to kind of have it get better. So um, that's another one that you have to be careful with. I'd, if you're going to short things, I would have to do it on like price to sales or price to book. And based on knowing what in the industry things are should trade at, you know, in that. So if you have a beverage company that's at whatever, this is not even that bad. But if it was at 20 times sales and stuff and, you know, these other ones, then obviously you could own the more normal one and short the one that's at the crazy price. Or other businesses where the book is crazy, right? And versus other ones that it isn't, you know, um, where the price to book is incredibly high. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people would do that. We own some where people would definitely do that. Um I'm sure a lot of people would say, well, why would you just own uh, like Virtu Motors or something, right? Why not short um, uh, another dealer that's more expensive? Now, there's not many that are very expensive, but there's some that are so much more expensive that, yeah, you could think that you were going to do better by doing that. Um, so the other thing is you can pick lots of individual risks to take shorting that you think will work out. Um, and that doesn't necessarily have to be based on price. So you can look at things and say, well, I think this bank will do well with rising interest rates. I think this one will do badly. I can be short one and long the other. And there are things like that that you could do and maybe figure out. But I don't know that the average person has enough insights in enough industries that you could really like diversify a lot by that. And usually they don't want to take very large short positions. So it's a bit of a problem, right? Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, like, what is the average short position for these funds is it like 10 basis points 20 basis points i mean it's very small yeah i mean what did he say about his basket and everything it's it's, it's often very small mm -hmm. yeah. um so picking out specific ones to short that way and stuff seems like a lot of work unless like i said unless you know the way that they're running and stuff that like bankruptcy and fraud and all those sorts of things i think that's a bit different but i think it's it would make sense to do that. It's fine to do that. I don't see a problem with it, but it's like merger arbitrage or any of these things. You don't have to do it. People should never feel like, oh, I have to be involved in doing this shorting stuff or whatever. You don't. You can just focus on what you do. I think it's just a totally different thing that you're mixing into a fund, really. Um, if you wanted to be hedged, that's a different story, and there that would just be cheaper and better in all ways and stuff to be short some sort of index um, when you're long the stock and then long stocks i think that would make much more sense if you're just looking to smooth out some returns i mean yeah exactly that's what they're doing is to lower the volatility i mean do you think a lot of it is these funds they it seems like most of them they started as value investors and then they grew and then they adapted to running a bunch of different books within the fund right like at the green light thing they have or in his letter he was talking about they have their short basket then they have a macro fund and then I'm sure, I mean, they have a value fund as well. So there's a bunch of different ways that they segment their book. And I wonder if that comes from just size, right? They just, they grew so much and now they have to come up with different ways to deploy the capital. Yeah. I also think he's like more quantitatively driven generally. Um, so shorting has been a part of what he's done forever. Um, but on the other hand, like part of the strong performance of the fund for a while is just that they had a buy and hold position in, in Greenbrick partners that like they treated differently than other things in the fund. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't like a lot of these things mainly because I think they're distractions from what people might do better, but there may be people listening to this who'd be better at shorting than buying and holding companies. 
I mean, there are people for whom buying and holding companies is not a very good strategy because they're not very able to execute on that where they're very able to execute on, on shorting things, you know? Do people reach out to you often to talk about shorting? Um, people mention that they're short things more than they ask me about it. So it, but it's interesting when people talk to me, sometimes people will reach out to talk about certain things, but, it, um, that are a little different, but normally when I know that someone is short something or in something quite speculative, they're not asking about that. They're just mentioning that, that like, oh, I also do this other stuff. So a lot of times it's like, they also do this other, these other things on the side. They don't really ask me about that. Um, they want to ask me about something that they say is more, um, of their serious investing thing that they're talking about, but then it comes out that they're short this stuff that they are doing these sorts of more speculative type things. Um, so lots of people do way more than you think. Um, and often in pretty small position sizes and stuff when they do it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I wonder um, if it's like the whole, you know, monger thing, it'll keep you out of the bars. I mean, it's like the richest person in the world has made all this money from being long only and talks about how it's just much easier to do that than, uh, you know, be short a bunch of co companies and, and, sort of the return on brain damage that comes with that. So I just wonder sometimes why people um, do that. Is it really just to smooth out returns? Is it because their personality, they like having activity? Yeah, and sometimes it may be easier to spot the things that are very overvalued versus the things that are very cheap. Um, certainly that's the case right now. And it was the case in the early 2000s when uh, he was talking about too, Einhorn. Um, so you kind of want to participate in some way because you're looking at this, you can see it's crazy, but how do I make any money off of it, you know? I think that's part of it. You're looking at things and they're not, it'd be great if there were all these things that were really cheap at the same time as there's all these things that are really expensive, but sometimes there aren't and you don't have really good ideas for how to make money by buying um, stocks that are cheap and good and all of that. Um, and so you see things that you think that you have opportunities to do it by shorting stuff. Um, I mean, I'd rather do merger arbitrage and stuff like that because I just think that the sort of, um, that as a group, that kind of thing, merger arbitrage, net nets, things like that, have much better returns on average if you just get kind of a median experience for it as opposed to shorting. You know, shorting has some significant costs and um, sometimes they're exaggerated, I think, because, you know, what we're, you're not really shorting an index or something. So the odds that it's actually going to go up by all that much as an index doesn't as good as you think the average stock doesn't do all that well in the long run. Um, so as long as you know that you're not picking anything that's a good business, maybe it's not as bad as that, but there's still costs associated with it besides just the odds that stocks on average go up over time. Um, but you know, I think that there are other ones that are a lot better. I definitely think if you could do net nets and merger arbitrage and stuff to stay out of the bars and save shorting, it would be better. Um, just because the whole group on average, just picking any, thing you know not being selective with it but just doing everything you can in there just tends to do better than shorting mm -hmm. have you ever shorted a stock based on valuation alone or because you thought it was a fraud as opposed to like no. shorting a stock with merger arb no never um just i don't just don't do it so i've never ever shorted anything except for the purpose of having to do it um that it was part of a two-part thing in the same capital structure, yeah, in the same company. That's the only time. Um, so, but the, you know, it doesn't mean that you want to, there's lots of things where I've thought you should short it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I would have made money if I shorted it. 
I mean, the other thing is like, take Carvana or something. This can be confusing to people, but like, if you look, it has this huge price up there, right? Um, where it went to whatever uh, crazy market cap it got up to and stuff. But um, you could still short it after it's fallen an incredible amount and still do just as well, uh, putting aside the cost of shorting, which could have changed dramatically during that time. But putting that part aside, in terms of just your return that you would get from it going down, you can, because at, once it goes to zero, basically, um, you're going to make the same amount of money as to what you put in, regardless of where you shorted it. So there's no need to short at 350. You can short at 100 just as easily because the stock is very large and very liquid and you would have no trouble um, doing that, I would assume. I don't know the details on how hard it is to, I mean, I'm sure it's very shortable, but I don't know how much, how uh, what you have to pay to do it. But um, I think that I'll, for some reason it looks like, oh, well, you know, um, I wish I shorted it at that peak or whatever. You don't need to. You only need to know, you know, how far it's going to drop from there. That's all that matters. Um, so it may be easier than it appears sometimes that way. There's no reason that you have to do it when it's very expensive. Um, you can do it after it's fallen 90%. You can do it after it's fallen by two thirds or whatever the prior year or something. There, you don't have to do it in the middle of all of those things where um, you're timing it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of trying to pick up a penny in front of a steamroller, right? Like you're advocating for letting the bubble pop first and then getting involved. Well, I, I don't think I would short something just, I, I wouldn't short something at all. Cause I don't want to be involved in doing that. Cause I think just on average, it's not a good thing to do, but if I was going to do it, I would short things in which I thought that they were, um, frauds and, uh, likely to go bankrupt. Um, now some of those will still go up on you and sometimes a lot Carvana's up a lot this year. I'm sure that like, um, you know, some of these things can turn into meme things and whatever. And as even as they say, they're going to, uh, file for bankruptcy and stuff, they can go up for a while, but yeah, I mean, eventually you should make the money from it. So I just, I don't see the need to do it. Um, I'm not sure. The part that I have trouble with it is I'm not sure how it would be that on average all the shorting that you could do is going to give you the kinds of returns of other groups of things that you can do, right? So yeah, each individual one might sound like a pretty good idea that you could do it, but it's like, why do this? Um, I talk about this a lot with people. Like, it's, um, I don't think I want to do something where more broadly defined that group of that, that kind of population of, of um, opportunities that you have isn't going to have a very good uh, return, right? So like with uh, net nets, they generally have very good returns. So I would always encourage people and stuff to think about net nets, not just because you might be right about this particular one, but it's a good skill to have. It's a good place to be looking and stuff because on average, the returns are pretty good in that the kind of the population of what net nets are. Of the things about like shorting, it depends because I'm not sure exactly how to define what the kind of the base case, uh, the base rate there is. Um, because what exactly is it that you're shorting? You're not shorting every, you know, you're shorting something, but there it's very particular why you're doing it each time. So I don't know. I just worry about drifting into things that you didn't um, understand what you were doing and stuff, you know? Um, but if you're super selective, it might work out fine. It's the same thing I would say with the margin arbitrage thing. 
doing the merger arbitrage. I don't think I'm particularly good at merger arbitrage, but I've had really good returns in it, but that's because I've done it so rarely. So possibly if you never short and then once in a blue moon you short something, maybe your returns will be very good because you'd only short, you know, it would have to be the most extraordinary opportunity for you to do that. Um, that could be, yeah. Um, and there's just people that are attracted to it too, you know, it, that kind of thing excites them. Um, so, it, yeah. Um, I don't know. Most people I've talked to about it have not suggested that it's a meaningful contributor to their performance though, even though it's something that they may do, um, off and on. So it's interesting. It, it seems to provide more like action than it does a meaningful contribution to their portfolio. So, um, whereas they're really I mean, taking their attention away too. Right. Mm hmm. Yep. Yeah. But you know, maybe buying the like worst, um, companies and stuff that are, that qualify for the value thing they normally buy, right? So if it's gotten to the point where there's just nothing available for them, um, maybe it's better than doing that, than buying really bad companies when they, they're just barely uh, cheap enough or whatever because the market is up so much over time that it's gotten hard to find the kinds of things they're used to finding or whatever. Um, I mean, a lot of people read about things. There's things that are written up as short things, even a Value Investors Club and all that. And uh, they get excited by the idea with it that way, you know. So I I do find that to be true a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that. I, I think it's very rare that I've heard someone talk to me about shorting something where it was their idea to short it and they'd not heard about it somewhere else. Usually they can tell why they got the idea to short it, um, which is a little bit different. Sometimes people do talk to me about stocks that they found that they can't really say that they were influenced by anyone to to suggest that particular stock, but it was just something that they came across themselves. Why do you think that is as it relates to shorting? Well, it's a bit of a narrative thing that they're mm -hmm. usually going on when they're shorting, you know? So I think that's um, a pretty big part of it. Uh, I mean... I read the short write-ups on Value Investors Club and any place else that I find people talking about shorting something. I certainly read short write-ups of companies that I consider buying or buy or whatever. Um, sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're not. <laughs> you know, it depends. Um, I, I don't find them all that impressive compared to other kinds of um, research that you could do on, on the company, you know, for things where you're investing in Um so, uh, because I think I mentioned that only because I think there's like a reputation that like, you know, the shorts have done much more research on the things that they're shorting everything, which could be true, but things that I've read that people are shorting doesn't impress me that much versus other, um, things, you know? So, um, I mean, we talked about farmer Mac, that was one that was shorted at one point by like Ackman and stuff. Right. And he did a mm -hmm. huge report on that. Yeah. So, I mean, I read the report and everything. So, um, that was previous, I mean, it would have worked out if you shorted it through the crisis because um, it, it had stuff that went badly that I don't think really had anything to do with his short report. But um, yeah, so sometimes you get an idea of things that are wrong with the company that way. That can be helpful. Have you looked at Herbalife? Yeah, I'm not going to get involved in a stock like Herbalife. I mean, there's some that it's just one of these. I mean, we don't, we don't, um, I don't think of us as worrying a lot about ESG and things like that, but there are some stocks that we won't buy 
that I'm just not comfortable with for, um, you know, ethical reasons or whatever. And this kind of falls into that category. Um, so, but I also wouldn't, obviously wouldn't short it because what they have done historically is a very powerful way of marketing. So just because it's not, you know, it, it, it's, um, yeah, I mean, so, some things that aren't the most ethical things are very effective ways of selling things and stuff. And so I wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. Um, but I, I just, I think most people would be fine if they never thought about shorting. So I don't have anything against it. And I don't necessarily agree with a lot of things people say about how difficult it is to do and um, how big the risks are versus what you're doing. Because I mean, some of those things are crazy. Like it, at 300 something, there was a big risk in shorting Carvana because you're upside because your liability is theoretically unlimited, right? Until you cover it. Whereas I can only go to zero on Carvana. Yeah, but the chance you're going to go to zero is pretty high, and the amount by which you're over it is so high that it's not a very big distinction there. You know, that was a. It. I can't believe that there's a lot more risk in shorting it at hundreds of dollars a share than there was in buying it. You're taking extraordinary risk in buying a business like that at that price. Um, which you're not so much in a business if you buy Microsoft at a price that's equally absurd because of how, um, because of the credit quality and the cash flows and all of that. So it, it could be a really bad decision and you're going to lose a lot of money, but it's not the same as how extraordinarily risky it is to buy a stock like that. I mean, so, uh, I just think that it's something that is not needed for most people and then they spend a lot of time worrying about it and it's different kinds of skills than you have. Now, it might help some people to like analyze businesses a little bit better to understand the downside risks of things if they were looking for things to short. Um, it might help because it might help them understand like, well, a, what I should short are things that I shouldn't buy, right? And it could kind of maybe give training that way in terms of looking out for things that have management issues, um, financial issues about staying in business and everything for the long term. Um, and so maybe it would help people that way, but I don't know. I found it to be very, very psychologically driven. There are some people who just are never going to be into it. There's some people who are always going to be into it. And it, it, you can almost predict it on their personalities talking to them. Oh, this is someone who's probably shorted some things. This is someone who's never done it, you know? Mm -hmm. I could see uh, you, if you want to talk about shorting something once in a blue moon, what's your first short position, like a 20% position, just how you would think about it, like on the long side, you know, instead of like 25 basis points. I mean, is that how you would structure it if you found one that was once in a blue moon? Well, there is an added issue of shorting, which comes up to what you're talking about. Um, it's very, very hard to short things that are not extremely well known. So it's the weird thing is that the stuff that's good to short would have to be things that are, and this is where it gets into the contrarian part of it and the unpleasantness for it. You have to, you'd have to short things because you need it to be you need basically you need to be large and liquid enough and stuff like that for the reasons that we were just describing about like how big a position do you take to short something and all that it's much more of an issue than when we we're talking about being long something so 
because what you're doing basically is you're selling and then you're going to buy later, but you have to be able to buy later, which is a little bit different than the issues that we face. So um, it becomes a real issue that you can't like discover something that people don't know a lot about, but actually is a good short. What you actually need is something to discover that there's a um, narrative about it that is in a sense misleading, right? And that's false and that this one matters more. So taking the Carvana example or something, what it is is this is rapidly growing, customers love it, whatever. You have to take the side, this is rapidly growing, um, using debt financing and stuff, it's gonna be bankruptcy. It's the same sort of thing that you're both looking at the same numbers and they have to be taking it from a tech uh, type background of you know investing in those kinds of businesses and things for the last 10 years and stuff. And this is what you wanna do, these disruptive things that are growing so fast. And you're taking it from the perspective of this is what it, a business looks like that's going to end up at zero. Um, and so it's things like that that you have to do, right? Um, you can't just discover things that people don't have a lot of the information on. So one, you really can't get information advantages and things that you're going to be short, I would say. Uh, that's been my experience that the things I've looked at where I've said, you know, steer clear of this, whatever. They're pretty well-known situations. Now people believe it's different than what I believe it is, right? But like the... It's not, you don't find like obscure um, frauds and things like that. What you find is things that are very well known, but people have a different belief about what's going on than, you know, what your belief would be in terms of being um, negative on it. So, um, yeah, I mean, in fact, usually there, I mean, it, it can really play with your head because usually there are explanations for it that are, are wrong and don't make sense and stuff, but they have explanations for it. You know, when we're talking about, um, so putting it aside Carvana, when we're talking about frauds and things like that. They are saying something that you know is like presenting in the wrong way, but people always offer up an explanation for it that way and stuff. So, that, you know, it's not something where you've discovered something and then, you know, um, it's going to go down now. There's always a rebuttal for it that way. <laughs> Could you give so, an example of that? Well, there's lots of things where I've talked to people and said, I think that there's serious fraud issues here. Uh, well, what I'll say is that the company is presenting itself as something it's not and accounting for it in ways that it isn't and stuff. And, um, you know, um, I think there's, yeah, there's a bunch of them. Um, uh, I guess, what have we talked about on the podcast that did some of those things because it's come out later? Um, I mean, we talked about one that was a leasing thing. And they later like changed some of their um, accounting policies and things and explained things about it. And I talked to someone about it and I said, I can't understand this business. And I'm, you know, uh, it's not, the business is not how they're describing the business um, and, uh, and how other people are describing the business. And um, so that was one. Uh, we talked about a litigation finance thing that was concerning to, to me. And we had someone on the podcast to talk about that stock. Um, and that was obviously concerning. And then there was a short report that came in on that one, just like a short thing on the, the leasing thing I'm talking about. Um, so what else was there? There, there may have been some others too that I can't think of right now that fall in those same categories where it was, um, you know, it, it was, uh, concerning about like the, the way that they, I mean, the way that they presented the business, basically, I guess mm -hmm. you could say, um, and other things involved with it. But you know, but the 
both the stocks you just mentioned still are publicly traded and have recovered at times and do fine. And there's people who swear the, the short reports are wrong. And I'm sure parts of the short reports are presumably wrong. Um, but uh, yeah, but there are things that you could have identified ahead of time had serious issues. Um, so, you know, where that's different than what we're talking about with Carvana and Party City and stuff where you have serious uh, thinking that there's like big um, credit problems in their future. You know, for years, you could have said that there's they're going on a path that doesn't look good. Um, the other ones are like, you know, more like they have to do with the the found uh, the um, the insiders or their control over it and stuff. But but mainly they have to do with how they talk about the business. Um, so like they use terms or things that I don't understand um, and they don't explain it, right? So normally like if you use accounting terms and things that you've never seen before, then there's usually a lot of explanation in for it. Um, the one that I don't mind mentioning the name of the company is GE because it's a giant company. And uh, you know, I've read their 10Ks and stuff going back a few years before all this most recent stuff. And um, they were very, uh, very opaque in their accounting for certain things, basically the things that had to do with long-term maintenance contract things, like you sell something on a long-term contract, um, and then how you deal with that. And you could see it in cash flows and things like that. And, and that one, like people didn't care. They focused on reported earnings, analysts covered and stuff, but obviously they all know, I mean, like analysts know a lot more about the company than I would know, but they were okay with it, you know? So it's, it's things like that, where that's very plain for everyone to see that they're playing around with their numbers um in those segments i don't know what they were doing in other things but they were definitely playing around with things in their um uh with their um uh basically their jet stuff and their medical stuff um so and you know i i don't i mean but it's a stock that's covered by an incredible number of people and the rumors are all out there about whatever they're doing and everything. So you're not going to come across something and have some insight other people don't have. Everyone must have had the same thing of saying, I have no idea what this is and what they're doing with it. Um, and that it doesn't make sense to me what they're saying. Um, but, you know, you buy the stock anyway. So I, I, I don't know. It's a, for me, the, the thing about it is it's very hard because to think about shorting because when I talk to people this does come up into sort of like an issue that I see a lot where I would like to tell people don't short and stuff you don't need to do it just buy stocks and whatever however I am very alarmed by the amount of people who are interested in things that seem very high risk to me from both a credit perspective and from a management slash fraud slash uh, accounting and just candor in talking about how the business works and presenting it as something that you can understand. Um, that's the biggest source of my concern in terms of like that people have to be able to learn to avoid those situations. And it seems really hard um, to get some people to avoid those situations. They can be very attracted to them. Why is that? Is it just a personality thing? Is it because it's the narrative in the market? A lot of people talk about it. So people are bringing these ideas to them. What do you think it yeah, is? Yeah, I think that's some of it. I also think a lot of it is um, not thinking in terms of probabilities and stuff. So basically you're looking at it and you're saying, okay, I read all this thing that people are all negative on this side and they're all positive on this side. 
I calculate what my upside can be and stuff. And then I think like, what do I believe more? Well, I, I don't really believe the short report exactly. I do kind of believe management a little bit more, I guess, you know, whatever. And then you kind of take a side and you say, okay, this is what I'm going with. Um, I just think that in terms of the probabilities, when you think about it, they are hugely riskier in a case like that. Um, even if it's right that you would slightly favor management's explanation of something over a specific short report um, that you have maybe slightly less problems with management than you do with a short report um, because you now have a very high possibility of some big losses and stuff that you don't have present at all in other stocks. And so, you know, if you're used to investing in stocks that have a tiny, tiny one in a hundred type chance of something like that happening. And now you're investing in things that might have a, a one in five chance or something, you know, that is 20 times worse. Um, that's basically what you're doing. And if you do that regularly, that's just has a huge effect in terms of what your potential losses could be. And, and um, it's just better to, to screen those things out immediately. Like we talk about with Buffett, you know, just saying is there catastrophic risk? I don't want to be involved with it, you know, and there's always really bad risk if there's, um, uh, fraud type stuff. And if there's recklessness in terms of, um, the, the company could go under, um, and those are also things that tend to persist right over time with the company too. So it's not like a one-time thing that's easily fixed once they have that problem. Um, you know, it, saying that there's like some credit issues with Carvana, for instance, means there's a level of recklessness with the way in which they handled the possibilities of making sure that they had, um, uh, that they weren't doing things that were really, really bad from a, a credit perspective, which is different than running into a one-time issue of credit stuff and having a very different attitude. So, um, cause like I talked to someone about a insurance thing and they were kind of interested in it. And I said, you know, I think this is going to fail. Right. Um, and as it is now, I, th I think what's ha ended up happening with the company is that basically it won't have any value in the subsidiary for the stock, but the policyholders are going to be fine. But so it ended up failing in the sense of for the owners. Um, so the issue there was the behavior, right? So it was like um, that they didn't, it just seemed the company was not taking seriously enough the fact that they were on the brink of um, uh, being out of business. So being, and so that's like Buffett with uh, Geico and stuff where he's talking about, you know, um, who the CEO is going to be and all those sorts of things. And so it's a lot of little things of what they were doing that was like reckless that way. But that's something that will like will continue. It's not a one time thing. So that's very different than when Buffett talks about Geico and American Express and these things that fall into a one time problem but have a good business. Um, some of these things are built into it from early on and are a real problem that could continue, you know, that will continue as you own the stock. Um, so, you know, but if at some point, I, I don't know when, midway through the Carvon experience, they'd said, you know, insiders are out, someone else is in and is going to turn it all around and whatever. Could you look at it? And like, could it be different? It, it might have been, you know. Um, you know, it can happen. There are businesses that are pretty good businesses that what they own and everything, but they're run in ways that are 
are a problem that way. And most frauds that like big frauds that you'll experience in the United States and stuff are not frauds from birth of the company and stuff. So like there's going to be stuff left over. There's legitimate things, um, you know, that it can be rehabilitated in some ways. So uh, it's not just like a made up thing that never existed. Um, so, you know, when different people are in there, it can certainly be a totally different situation. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you are joining us, we are coming up on five years on the podcast. So if you want to get access to our backlog, uh, go to the podcast app or YouTube. Make sure you leave us a rating review wherever you are watching and listening to us. Go to Focus Compounding to get access to everything we're doing. If you're interested in our money management services, all that information is at focuscompounding.com for free. Well, thank you so much for all the support and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.